I am Steve Becker. I served as a district court judge in Reno County, Kansas for 26 years. After retiring from the bench, I served in the Kansas legislature for six years. I'm Beth White. I spent almost a decade with parole services, helping those integrate back into society. And this is Cleared. father. Hey, Beth, we're back. I know, season two. I know, getting ready for another season. We had a little interim there. Um, so did you go on a cruise with your family? <laughs> no, if I went on a cruise, it would not be with my family, I think, at this point. I think the last place we left, that's kind of cool to say. I could just skip all of the craziness that happened in between and just put it like that was after my very first nursing, the night before my very first nursing school exam. And here we are. And you're going at it strong. It's rough. <laughs> but yes, we're still, we're still there. We're still doing it. Only now, instead of doing it on dummies, we're doing it on actual people in a clinical setting. So that's good. But it's just a whole lot at once. And I'm very much enjoying it, but it is very much time-consuming, mind-consuming, everything-consuming. So, yes, that's where I've been. Where have you been? I didn't go on a cruise either. You have been watching the kids a lot, though. That's kind of <laughs> like a cruise. <laughs> but, yeah, a lot of, I guess what's been happening is life. Yeah. And uh, But your nursing education, you're doing well. Thank you. That's I'm, nice to hear. I'm proud of you. Because I don't feel like I'm doing well, so thank you. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. So we'll get back in the groove. Yes, both very much miss this, miss being with Chris here. So very thankful to get to come back and do this. Yeah, I'm glad we're continuing to do this. And we're going to get back in the groove of talking about wrongful convictions because... They happen. They continue yeah. to occur <laughs> even if, when we're not talking about them. So I think we should start uh, with the, what I try to start each episode with, the uh, National Registry of Exonerations. As of today, there have been 3,388 um, exonerations since 1989. Yay. Yeah. Yay. But I want to add one more thing. You and I, Beth, know that the 
real number is at least 3,389 because we're going to profile a case in this episode that is so current it hasn't been added to the National Registry yet. Yep. So, yeah, it's a pretty good case, too. It's from sort of from our area and uh, from the or Midwest, at least the Midwest, from our Midwest Innocence Project, oh, who we yes. love and support. Man, when I was doing the research here for this thing, of course, other names came up and um, like Ricky Kidd and Kevin Strickland mm-hmm. came up in my research. They were Midwest Innocent Project uh, clients. and So was Laquanda. We profiled her. I think that was our last one that's up. Yep. What a wonderful job they're Absolutely. doing. Absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, there there's some pretty interesting twists in uh, our story today. So, um, Beth, why don't you introduce our listeners to Mr. Johnson? Well, I should say we should have some sort of disclaimer on this because when I was researching this, I was getting very fired up and there may or may not have been curse words coming from my mouth. So I'm going to try very hard to restrain myself because there is parts of this story that infuriate me. So Yeah, you've kind of given me a clue to that already. But yes. Yeah, we need to we need to have our filter up. Yeah. We are going to be talking about Mr. Lamar Johnson. Uh, to set and this is rel- this not relatively new. This is brand new. He was just exonerated, spoiler alert, two weeks ago from the date we're recording. He was re- exonerated February 14th of this year. So everything's very fresh. And there is, thankfully, quite a decent amount of information out there. But still, I'm sure we'll be able to learn more um, as he's able to readjust and find his place in society. So this story, it starts in the year of 1994, and it's actually fall of that year, October, the end of October. It's 9 p.m. at night, so obviously it's dark outside. Uh, We're in St. Louis. We're in Missouri, so dark outside. Marcus Boyd and his friend James, James L. King, they're sitting on Marcus's front porch. Now, just to kind of give you an idea of Marcus's porch, it's It's his apartment porch, and I kind of envision it. There's a door at the bottom and then a series of steps all the way up. So it's a good deal of steps, a screen door. His girlfriend's up there, and there's lights on up there, so the light's kind of trickling ambient lighting down towards where they are on the front porch. Um, The neighborhood they're in, there's maybe one street light 20 yards away, and they're sitting on the porch without the porch light, so it's dark outside. So they're sitting there hanging out talking when all of a sudden two black men approach them. They are dressed head to toe in black and they're wearing black ski masks. Um, According to James, one of them says, and this is where I will say a naughty word, get the up to Marcus. Both the men have uh, weapons. One I believe is a semi-automatic handgun and the other one's a rifle. So they are grabbing Marcus and a wrestling match ensues. Uh, The assailant, the mask man, gets the gun and he shoots Marcus in the back of the neck up through the head. And the other assailant who was with James 
turns around and starts shooting Marcus too. At this point, Marcus's girlfriend is upstairs. She hears the noise. She thinks it's fireworks. So she comes down to see what's going on. She gets to the end of the steps. She sees Marcus laying on the ground with a black man standing over him in a mask, shooting at him. She immediately runs upstairs and calls 911. Uh, The call to 911 was, I believe, 907. So all of this happened very quickly. I think uh, the girlfriend was there with their infant yeah also they had a child in the apartment yep um the men realizing marcus is dead they run the same way they came down the alley that leaves james there and james is terrified he immediately jumps off the porch and runs home so it's just marcus and the girlfriend present at the house by the time the detectives come they're interviewing uh marcus's girlfriend Leslie, I believe is her name. And she tells him what she heard, how she came downstairs, how there was two black men. They had masks on. They both had weapons. They are both shooting at Marcus. Marcus is transported to the local hospital and he dies within the hour, unfortunately. Um, The police immediately have in their mind, Marcus is a known local drug dealer. So they have it that this is some sort of... um, drug robbery, something along those lines. Uh, Leslie tells the detectives that Marcus's friend James was there. So they try and hunt down James to hear his side of the story and figure out what's going on. And they kind of have a hard time locating him because we talked about how James jumped off the porch and ran home. Well, not only did he do that, he got his girlfriend and he went to his girlfriend's house because in his mind, they were going to come after him because he was the witness. So he's, he's terrified. He's shaken. He's just experienced a significant traumatic event. Uh, He reluctantly starts talking uh, to the detectives and telling them pretty much the same thing that Leslie did. They were sitting there talking. It was dark. Two black men, uh, ski masks covering their face with just slits for the eyes and nose. Wasn't able to see them very well, and both of them had handguns. The detectives asked if he would be willing to come to the police station to view a photo lineup. He reluctantly agrees. He is super shaken at this point. So they get him to the police station and they have a series of two photo lineups for them. In one of them, they have Lamar Johnson's picture. They show it to James. James says he's unable to identify anybody. They show him the second series who has a separate individual named Philip Campbell. These are kind of the other drug dealers whatever in the area. These are who they have in their mind based on the descriptions that were given to him that are the assailants that killed Marcus. He's unable to identify anybody in that set of series of photos. And then he goes back, according to the detectives, and identifies Lamar as being one of the shooters, the one that was dealing with him, I believe. So that kind of gets the process started for Lamar. And I'm not real sure how they had already zeroed in on Philip, do do you know that at all? But they narrowed in on Philip Campbell pretty quick, too. Yeah, I think there were some things about... um, Maybe some issues that they had previously. Well, and I think... um, I I don't know if this was a statement made at trial, but uh, the the victim, Marcus Boyd's... Oh, yes, excuse me, uh, ...girlfriend told him that Boyd, the victim, 
and Lamar were tight. They were very good friends. She called them as brothers. Yeah. And um, a second item, um, Lamar, at the age of 20, had a substantial criminal history already. Yeah. So if the detectives knew those those two things, um, they were probably already looking at Lamar. Yeah. And they were relatively in close proximity to each other, too. After James identified Lamar as being one of the shooters, the detectives went and pick up Lamar, who was three miles away at his girlfriend's house. Lamar says that he was with his girlfriend the entire time. She corroborates his alibi. She did mention that he had stepped outside for maybe five minutes or so to talk to a friend, but that's about it. So they take Lamar to the police station. They have Philip Campbell at the police station, and then they approach uh, James L. King, the witness, and say, hey, okay, we've done the photo lineup. Would you be willing to do an in-person lineup? Reluctantly, he agrees. He uh, is placed in, I guess, the room, the waiting room. I don't know what you call that, the one with the double-pane mirror so the suspects can't see him, but he can obviously see the suspects. According to the detective, he asks multiple times, they can't see me, right? You're sure they can't see me? They can't see me. Once he is assured that that's the case, he has each one of the people in the lineup say, again, I can't remember if it was get the fuck up or shut the fuck, something like that. He has each one of the individuals in the lineup say that. Uh, Lamar was in position three of the first lineup. He said, goes through all the individuals, and of course, the other individuals in the lineup are just fillers they pulled from the holding tank. They have nothing to do with the crime, obviously. And in the first lineup, James identifies uh, position number four, which just happens to be somebody that the detectives pulled. And keep in mind, um, at this point, James is the only person, excuse me, Lamar is the only person to both be in the photo lineup and the in-person lineup which we've talked about before is kind of indicating to the witness if he sees that person more than once subconsciously you could think the police detectives are trying to tell me something so issue already with that the second group of men that they bring in to show james he's unable to identify anybody they walk him out again he is extremely distraught very traumatized by the experience. And according to police detectives on his way out, he says to them, Hey, listen, I need to do the right thing. I really do know who it was. And it's actually three and four position three and four of the lineup, which was Lamar and Philip. So according to detectives that happened on the way down and they don't have any kind of records other than them saying that James said that. So during the lineups, he doesn't identify anyone. He makes a false identification. That's right. Yeah. In the first lineup. Yep. Second lineup, he doesn't identify anyone. Yeah. And they're very forthcoming with how shaken he is and how upset he is and how reluctant he is because he thinks that whoever did this is going to come kill him. Sure. And, sure. you know, who wouldn't feel that way? So based on his eyewitness identification, both Lamar and uh, Philip Campbell are arrested and charged with the murder of Marcus, Marcus Boyd. So we get to trial. There is absolutely zero 
physical evidence tying Lamar to the murder. There's nothing other than this eyewitness testimony. In fact, the prosecuting attorney even said years later, without that eyewitness testimony, the case was very iffy at best. Yeah, the eyewitness testimony of uh, Mr. Eckling um, was the primary evidence. Yeah. They had other evidence, but certainly the eyewitness testimony was evidence. And again, um, hanging your hat, hanging your prosecutorial hat on that eyewitness identification when... um, There's such high stakes. We're talking a high stakes situation here. We're talking about somebody's life. Absolutely. But we're also, we're seeing two people that the eyewitness did not know dressed in black, full facial ski masks, except for the eyes, of course, never had seen these two people before, both of them having weapons. In the commission of him being a weapon pointed at him, his traumatic event. And all these things are uh, red flags as to the credibility of the identification. Yeah. I mean, uh, plus, I don't think you've mentioned, but I will mention that Mr. Eckling, the eyewitness, is Caucasian. He's white. And Lamar Johnson Everybody else, everybody else in the situation is black. Right. But we'll get to, I want to, I want to do this, then we'll get to all of that. I want to talk about that. I know you do. I want to talk about it too, but let's, okay, here, so at the trial, zero physical evidence tying them to the crime, nothing. They have their eyewitness, which we just identified several issues with the eyewitness testimony. Um, They also have this jailhouse informant. We love them. We've talked about that, Yeah, we love jailhouse snitches. So, according to the detective, um, they're... This gets so convoluted. So, this individual, this person that was housed with Lamar and not with Lamar in the same cell, according to the jailhouse informant, his cell was 20 to 30 feet away from Lamar's. So I don't know if you've ever been in a prison or jail setting, but it's not quiet. It's it's not peaceful. There's yelling. There's screaming. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on because that's how they communicate with each other is they yell back and forth. Um, according to this informant, he overheard, he attributes Lamar to saying something about that white boy that shouldn't be alive and they don't have enough to hold me because they don't have the gun. So that is the jail informant testimony that's supposed to be telling against Lamar. Keep in mind the jailhouse informant has never met Lamar, so he can't say he recognized his voice. He didn't see Lamar. He did not see Lamar physically speak those words. He just said he heard those words. And those words weren't even necessarily specific to Marcus or James. Oh Yeah, that wasn't a confession. No. They could have been talking about anybody. So there's that. That was also presented as evidence against Lamar and Philip. Um, <laughs> something else. The 
prosecution presented evidence that a ski mask was seized from Lamar, and that ski mask was identical to the ones that was alleged to have been worn by the two assailants. I didn't read anything about that. So they presented that as evidence. Uh, The problem being is the mask was confiscated from Lamar weeks before the commission of the crime. What? So the, the evidence they're presenting that he had this mask that matched that of the assailants, the mask that was Lamar's was in police custody during the crime. But, but that, they used it for this. And it, that was made known that they confiscated this mask from Lamar weeks prior to the murder, but they still presented that as evidence against Lamar. Because apparently since he likes that mask, maybe he has a whole bunch at home, I guess, is the thought process. They were pretty desperate. You think? I do. Yeah. And then there's also some weird testimony from the detectives um, that talk about, again, this white boy theory. And according to one of the detectives, when he first was interrogating Lamar, Lamar was going on about how the white boy that shouldn't be alive and just something along those lines, kind of along the same note as the jailhouse informant. Uh, Of course, none of the audio equipment was running when this happened. There's no documentation. Nobody else heard it other than this jailhouse informant 20 to 30 feet away from Lamar and this detective. So that was also presented as evidence against Lamar. So somehow based on, oh, and I guess I should say, so Lamar had that alibi with his girlfriend. His girlfriend said he stepped outside for five minutes to talk to a friend. You've already talked about Lamar's history of also being a drug dealer um, that was allegedly to complete the drug transaction, I guess. And Lamar and um, Jane, no, Lamar and Marcus were close friends. That's also talked about too. Um, so the whole theory of the prosecution is in that five minutes tops, he was away from his girlfriend. He went and committed this crime. So we talked about how Marcus and James were three miles away from Lamar. That's that's the distance. It was timed, and it took nine minutes one way just to get to the house. That's not doing anything. That's just nine minutes there. So already you're at a deficit of committing this crime in five minutes. So for whatever it's worth, that was their theory. Both men somehow were convicted of this crime in the fall of 95 um, and sentenced to life in prison, both Philip and Lamar. So normally when we talk about post-conviction, there is a lot of appeals and a lot of hearings and just a lot going on legally for the people we've talked about before. Uh, With Lamar, there is not. He didn't have any appeals. He didn't have as far, he didn't have his day in court again after that. Interestingly enough, I found something that he was convicted in Fall of 95, in September of 95, he received a letter from Philip Campbell, the other person that was convicted of the murder. And the letter was seized, and the prosecution was made aware of the letter, so was the defense. And the letter had Philip talking to Marcus saying, hey, I know you didn't commit this crime, but that's the way the, dr- that's the, way the drug biz goes, essentially. And you're here for 
XY's place and he didn't get caught. But when you play the game, that's just how it happens. So the letter came from Philip. Correct. Essentially. Philip Campbell, the co-defendant with Lamar. And it was basically a confession by Philip that he did the crime. Yes. But not with Lamar. Acknowledging that Lamar had no part in it at all. So this, that that was happened as early as 95, the same year, as the same time he was convicted. They were convicted of So the was it post-conviction, this letter? I found one source that said that it was even presented at sentencing, but I couldn't find it anywhere else, so I'm not going to say, like, definitely. Okay. But they were made aware of that then. So this entire time after his conviction, honestly, up until, like, 2018, that's the time frame we're talking Lamar advocates for himself. He uses the Freedom of Information Act. He writes everybody. He gets all of his court papers. He gets the criminal history of the jailhouse informant, which wouldn't you know, he had lots of crimes against dishonesty that was not disclosed during the trial. And if you have crimes against dishonesty, how honest are you going to be about telling, being a an informant for somebody else? So Yeah, my research research also mentioned that Lamar wrote everybody. Yes. Repeatedly. Yes. It's almost like uh, Shawshank. Yeah. You remember Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. And the guy wanted library books, so he wrote letter after letter after letter. Yeah. That's kind of what Lamar was doing. He did. He, Nobody was helping him. He didn't have counsel. Nope. No, like, formal appeals process for whatever reason that I can find. Well, I guess nothing was filed. (sighs) So, he is doing it all on his own, and he's doing an amazing job. During this time, he meets Ricky Kidd. He actually ends up being cellmates with Ricky Kidd. Um, And they become really good friends. In fact, Ricky said at one point they're out at yard... And Lamar said to him, you know, you're not going to believe this, but I'm innocent. I didn't I didn't do the crime. And Ricky said, oh, really? Well, you're not going to believe this. I didn't do my crime either. And they just developed a really fast friendship over that. And something that I kind of want to throw out there, there's this um, idea that everybody in prison says they didn't do it. That's not my experience. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I feel like maybe before you get to prison, there's that like gray area where you really haven't accepted responsibility. But my experience for people working with people in prison and after is they're very open and honest about what they did and did not do. They have nothing to lose at that point. There's not that many people that come out and that are adamant that they did not commit a crime. That is rare. So we need to end that stigma. Not everybody's innocent in prison, at least not based on my experience. So they become really good friends. And how ironic that exonerations are supposed to be a dime, a needle in a haystack. And it just so happens that two exonerees are cellmates together in the same prison. Yes. That's kind of crazy. What Ricky, are the odds? Ricky Kidd is also an exoneree. And uh, spoiler alert, so is Lamar Johnson. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that that is... Uh, that's pretty random considering this is supposed to be isolated incidents, I think. I think that's telling. So Ricky Kidd is able to get his case accepted by the Midwest Innocence Project, and they're working on his case. And like I said, that he's really good friends with Lamar, and he said he recalls one night where Lamar was up just pacing, super upset because he's doing this all on his own. He has nobody to help him, and he says, I don't know that I'm ever going to get out. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. 
And so Ricky makes a point to reach out to Midwest Innocence Project for his friend, advocating for his friend, telling them, look, he's done all the research. It shouldn't be, it'll be half the job because he's made all this easy for you. And whatever he said, it worked because the Midwest Innocence Projects actually ended up picking up Lamar Johnson's case too. So that's the first good win for Lamar. So flash forward to 2018, the newly elected Kimberly Gardner in the St. Louis District Attorney's Office creates a conviction integrity unit. We've talked about those before too. And as part of that conviction integrity unit, she chose to review Lamar's case. So she reviews Lamar's case thoroughly. And in 2018, she petitions the court for a new trial, listing a whole slew of issues with Lamar's case. Yeah, she files the district, where we call them district attorneys, um, but she she files a motion for new trial uh, in the Lamar Johnson case. And spoiler alert, Kimberly Gardner is a hero in this story, so we love her. Take note of her name. The prosecutor. Yes, the, the prosecutor. prosecutor files a motion for new trial for Lamar Johnson. So to name some of the key issues she points out, The first one was undisclosed payments by police to a key witness. Get out of town. So let's talk about this. That friend that was with Marcus, James Elking, I think I said, how did you say his name? The white guy. Yeah, what was his name? You said it right. I did not. Eckling. Eckling. That sounds right more than Elking. Anyways, come to find out that not only was James receiving money from the police, he recanted his eyewitness identification. He said that he felt pressured by police to name somebody. He was told prior to the physical in-person identification that they had arrested two people that were known bad guys in the area, and it took a good guy like him to get those kind of people off the street. So he was made aware that there was already arrest and that in each one of those lineups, one of those were the people in his mind that committed the crime. Well, in reality, there's no way he could have identified the culprit when the when, when he hadn't circum- seen him before. When- I mean, maybe you can identify a friend when they're disguised, but a complete stranger and no, that that doesn't happen in reality. And something I did not mention During the trial, uh, James focused on the reason why he was able to identify them, and Leslie, the girlfriend, too, cooperated this, was that Lamar had a lazy eye. All throughout the trial, they kept talking about the lazy eye. And in fact, one of the incidents was his face was even so slanted that he had a lazy eye. Lamar doesn't have a lazy eye. His face isn't slanted. But according to James, that was why he was able to make that eyewitness identification was because of this lazy eye. So um, he's feeling pressured by the prosecutor to make an identification. Once he agrees to make the identification and testify in court, he gets a $250 check. Oh, my goodness. And this continues to the tune. I, I had 4000 You had a different number. I had $4,200. $4,200 he ended up receiving from prosecution and law enforcement for his cooperation. And that was for him to relocate. And they did this under the pretense of some sort of witness relocation or witness protection program. 
um, Kimberly Gardner felt that that was not a adequate uh, justification of the money that he was receiving and that there was definitely issues with that because that was also not made aware at the trial of or to defense. Not. And what is it called when the prosecution has evidence and they don't tell the defense? Uh, let me think. I think the Supreme Court addressed that. Maybe Brady violation. I- <laughs> so there's that. Now, I will say and I know you're going to break into this. Another issue with identification, we've talked about James being white and everybody else in the situation being black, and we've talked about this before, the problems with cross-cultural identification. There's a significant amount of research out there. They even mentioned it, Kimberly Gardner mentioned it in her opinion, that we are unable to identify characteristics of cross-cultural people different than our culture. We There's some sort of mental block and eyewitness identification becomes even more problematic when it's cross-cultural. And I know you have, I'm sure. Are you waiting? <laughs> Why, no. No, and, and I guess that's a... Um, okay, a little cowboy talk. That's like a burr under the saddle um, for me. Um because eyewitness identification, that meaning identifying a person, um, is problematic anyway. Uh, the studies show that it's not very reliable. But this cross-racial or cross-cultural identification, there's 30 years of clinical studies about our inability to identify a member of another race. And it doesn't matter of the race of the identifier as long as that person is identifying some other race individual. It's it's notoriously unreliable. and I, I'm, I feel so strongly that juries need to be instructed of this phenomena because most people don't see that, or maybe they. I, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. To the and the, to the strength of the body not, of evidence that supports that. Yeah. I mean, not this is, to this degree. Yeah. I mean, we can't do it. It's very widely accepted among experts that. That's it's not even a question. That's a thing. Like that's a real thing. Yeah, it is. And and I want the juries to be instructed that this phenomenon exists when they're weighing the evidence. I I'm not saying the evidence sh- is inadmissible. Yeah, the evidence is admissible, but the jury's making the judgment, the jury weighs the credibility of every witness, and they should be aware of this phenomena that affects the credibility of this type of eyewitness. So I feel pretty strongly about that. I'm gonna talk about it every time we see it, see it in one of our cases, which we've certainly talked about it before, so. And it was a big deal in this case because the Caucasian witness who identified the black Lamar 
Johnson um, was the what the primary point of the the only point of the state's case. The That's only. where the state hung its hat. Yeah, the only is on this eyewitness identification. Well, and something to go along with that, we've already talked about that this a little bit, but how susceptible our mind is to um, suggestion. When it comes to eyewitness testimony, we talked about how Lamar was the only person in the photo lineup, and then he was also in the in-person lineup, and they had already told him that they made arrest of the bad guy, and they, he was a known bad guy, and just how powerful that suggestion was to James of making that ID, that that's problematic. And he said, too, before the trial, that he said that he suffered with the feeling of lying about making the identification this entire we're talking three decades almost at this point that's how long he's dealt with it and he said at trial he was sequestered in a room um with leslie the girlfriend and marcus's mom and how upset and emotional they were and how he just felt like he had to do something to get justice for marcus and how that really pushed him to continue on with this whole notion that he was able to make the id too so uh, that was identified as a primary issue with his trial, with Lamar's trial. The second issue was that there were credible confessions from two other men. Now, we talked about the letter from Philip Campbell saying, essentially saying that he did it. He's aware that Lamar didn't do it, but that's just how it goes and you need to deal with it. The second was an individual named James Howard. Um, there were actually letters and signed affidavits, and James confessed that he was the other person that shot and killed Marcus. And These are items that are included in this motion for new trial Yes, in 2018. Yes, a, a signed affidavit from this individual yes. named James Howard who said that he was the one who physically, he was the one that shot, shot Marcus in the back of the head. And apparently, according to James Howard, they were dealing crack cocaine and he was dealing it with this other individual. And apparently how they did it was they get this shipment of whatever crack, crack cocaine. They split it in half and there are shavings that come off when they split it and they keep splitting it and position, portioning it out and selling it. Well, according to James, Marcus was keeping the shavings and it had gotten to a significant amount and James and Phillip's boss was having issue with this because he felt like Marcus should pay him. And so that's what prompted uh, James and Philip to go towards Marcus because they wanted to go rob him because they felt like their boss deserved a, a cut. If, if James is to believed, that's what he stated under oath. So they have two people that admit to the crime that I would say that's a big red flag. <laughs> For his conviction. I don't know. Call me crazy. Um, and then we talked about the jailhouse informant criminal history. And we talked about how he made this uh, statement that he heard Lamar say, despite not knowing Lamar, not knowing Lamar's voice, not seeing Lamar, not seeing Lamar saying it, and have for the statement really have could be about anything. So that wasn't never, that was never made aware at the trial or that the jailhouse informant um, had a significant criminal history with crimes against dishonesty. So another issue they felt um, should have been addressed. And then the other one was police officers lying and hiding exculpatory evidence 
And then I wrote big, bold, black letters, Brady violation. (laughs) And that had to deal with um, the detectives paying James. It had to deal with this whole white guy that should have been murdered conversation that just there's no record of anybody having. So um, those were the main issues that Kimberly Gardner and the Conviction Integrity Unit in Missouri, in St. Louis, uh, Missouri, pointed towards and filed the petition for a new trial for Lamar. Do you have anything to add to that? Only so our listeners understand that this motion for new trial is filed with the trial court. We still don't have any involvement with the appellate system. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to point out that the prosecutor files this motion for new trial, and she files it in the court where the conviction occurred. Okay, so Lamar is hopeful. He finally has people on his side. He has the freaking prosecution on his side. The court that convicted him, the office that convicted him is on his side. Um, It's filed in July of 2019, and wouldn't you know it, the local judge says, you know what, I don't think prosecutors have the authority to retroactively correct a wrongful conviction. I don't think this is accurate. So they appoint the state attorney general on the issue. And I just want to add back on conviction integrity units. As part of that motion, it noted that in 2020 specifically, that were 74 conviction integrity units that were responsible for 63 exonerations in that year alone. So just another reason why Kimberly Gardner is a hero in that there are people out there actively trying to do something to prevent wrongful convictions. So that that's a little, that's the highlight. That's the gold lining on this next part that really aggravates me. So the judge says, yeah, you, you can't do that. And he appoints conservative state attorney general, Eric Schmidt to the issue. And he also argued that the state doesn't have the power to ask for a new trial Despite the fact that the previous year in 2018, another Missouri prosecutor was allowed to set aside two convictions due to new evidence. So they're doing it. They just don't like it when Kimberly does it. I want to interject something here. Since you're dropping names, you're going to be dropping the name of Attorney General Eric Schmidt of Missouri. The listeners should be made aware that that is not the recent <laughs> Attorney General Derek Schmidt of Kansas. We're yeah. not talking about Derek Schmidt. We're talking about Eric. We're talking about Eric Schmidt of Missouri. Although I feel like they could be relatives. <laughs> no. I feel like there could be ties somewhere based on some of this behavior. No, I take offense. Uh, I got to know... Derek Schmidt, when I was serving in the legislature, do not roll your eyes at me, young lady, and came to respect him, and I I find him to be a good man as an attorney general. Okay, well, you know what I don't enjoy and don't appreciate? Somebody actively having evidence that an innocent man has spent 30 years almost in prison and then actively works against his freedom. That's what I take issue with. 
Yeah, I know you do. Which is what happened, which is what's making me so feisty. And I'm just going to take a deep breath here. So they argue the prosecution can't write a wrongful conviction and they win. It's determined that. They, yeah. It's determined that Kimberly Gardner does not have the authority and the petition goes nowhere and Lamar's back to zero. So that's saying that the prosecution who actively searched, researched the case, finds significant issues, significant mis- misconduct by the prosecution's office, goes out against it, makes everything public, but they can't do anything about it. They don't have the authority. So that's just where it ends, according to... Attorney General Eric Schmidt and the local judge. But thankfully, that season, the 2021 legis- legislative session in Missouri, they took note of the issue. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that because they are allowing other prosecutors in other regions in the state of Missouri uh, to vacate sentences, just not Kimberly. So, and there's a lot of political stuff that goes along with that. Would you like to touch on that? No, I'm. No, keep going. Okay. So um, even Kimberly herself is very adamant that, and she's apologized. She said, if this were any other prosecutor presenting this petition in front of a judge, it would have been granted because it was me and I'm a more liberal um, person in office. It's not being granted. And she apologized for that. I watched interviews of her saying that and how that's wrong. Um Thankfully, that that same year, the legis no, actually, it's not that same year. Excuse me. Flash forward three years, the Missouri legislator drafted a new bill allowing for prosecutors to set aside or vacate convictions on the basis of innocence. Yes. So, with that new bill in hand, she files it again, and December of 2022, because of that law. Um, she presents the 59-page petition of all of her findings, all of the issues with the case, and Lamar is granted a hearing in December of last year, so just a few months ago. They have a five-day hearing where they cover um, an evidentiary hearing, I believe, where they yes. cover all of the new evidence, everything that was found to be have issues with during his trial. And that's after four years of her releasing the original petition. This is four years later, Lamar had to wait for this hearing to happen for him to get any day in court, but nonetheless. So he goes to court and um, on the opposition is the attorney general, again, fighting his new new trial is I assume what they're going for. They present all of the evidence that we talked about and February 14, 2023, two weeks ago, Judge David Mason determined to vacate Lamar's conviction and ordered his immediate release. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he, it took a, what, two months, but he, the judge did issue an opinion saying there's obviously issues and Lamar was exonerated. So that's all wonderful. He served 28 years. Yes, almost three decades of his life. Went in young 20s, came out um, pushing 50. He 28 had, years for a crime he did not commit. He had two small children when he was first incarcerated. He did say he um, had that strong relationship um, with Ricky 
And he also spent his time working in the hospice unit. And he really gained a greater appreciation for life working with those who were on their last days. So, oh, that's a nice thing to know. Yeah. He also he also spent a lot of time writing letters. Yeah, he did. And researching his case. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so he left prison, no car, no furniture, no home to call his own. He had clothes that were not his prison clothes, thanks to his family and friends, but Missouri has no compensation laws. So he has 20 years, 28 years of his life lost, and at this point, he has nothing to recoup for that, Um, which again, makes me a little feisty. So um, shortly after his release, obviously, because we're only two weeks out, he's already testified in the Missouri State House in favor of a a compensation bill for those that are wrongfully convicted. Uh, He got to do so uh, along with his friend and former cellmate, Ricky Kidd. Um, Ricky actually was exonerated. He lost 23 years of his life due to a false conviction. Uh, I believe the year prior, there was a bill in Missouri's state house similar to that, the compensation bill, and it made no movement, no progress. So hopefully this bill will. So uh, the Midwest Innocence Project, another hero in this story, has set up a GoFundMe for Lamar. And I I donated. I, ha- I happened to see my dad's name just right above mine. So that was kind of fun. Uh, but at this current point, they have raised $551,975 for Lamar, which is amazing. But I can't help but feel sad that Lamar, it's up for the charity of others. It's not up for the state that did him wrong to right the situation and help him get on his feet. It's the kindness of others that's going to do it. So... Yeah. Okay. My research added, I have a couple of things to add. It's my understanding that the Missouri legislature did pass a compensation. Not unless it happened super recently, because he just testified but, on it, I feel like, last week. But there was a uh, caveat that they would compensate wrongfully convicted only if their innocence was proven by DNA. Well, that's helpful. And that didn't help Lamar at all. Okay, that could be Because this is a non-DNA exoneration. Yeah, that could be it then. Yeah. And uh, so had he qualified for this newly adopted um, Compensation Act, uh, he would have received well over a million dollars uh, for 28 years. But again, I think it was the headlines in the Kansas City Star or, I don't know, maybe the St. Louis paper. But they said that Missouri's response to wrongful convictions was, our bad, thanks for coming. Yeah. Sucks being you. Yeah. And again, that angers me. And again, think about I, I. I always put, and I think it's just the lack of empathy that really, really upsets me. Um, think about when you were twenty years old. Yeah, you, you have two young babies, and then all that's taken from you, and you're released when you're almost fifty. Think about that time span. And I'm not even 
halfway through that time span. And I just can't imagine missing the things that I've missed. And for no reason, even at the trial, they had evidence at the trial that somebody else had confessed to the crime, but yet they pursued, yeah, they pursued prosecution. So Eric Schmidt, the former attorney general, he ran for- Of Missouri. Of Missouri, not of Kansas, because we like (laughs) Derek Schmidt, we respect him. Eric Schmidt, on the other side. On the other hand, in Missouri, he ran for Senate last year and won a seat. So he is in the United States Senate. Um, I just feel like if you are an appointed representative and your job is to look out for your constituents and the right of society, and you know, have the information in your hands that somebody is innocent and did not commit a crime and lost almost three decades of their life, and you actively fight to keep that prison incarcerated. That is my definition of corruption. I don't, I don't know what else would be there. So that, that just, that very much angers me. Uh, the Midwest Innocence Project issued a release for on Lamar's behalf when he was released just a few weeks ago. And it said that he is looking forward to spending time with his daughters, which he has managed to forge really strong relationships with despite being in prison their majority of their lives. And that he wants to feel the ocean meet his feet and enjoy a Dairy Queen blizzard at his earliest opportunity. So <laughs> good for Lamar. Yes. I'm happy We're for very Lamar happy and his for family. Lamar. Um, we're going to post the GoFundMe for Lamar that was created by the Midwest Innocence Project on our Facebook. If you are so um, called to do so, to donate to him, um, j- I, I can't go on enough about if you want to put a number on what those years of your life look like. There, There's not one. So anything we can do to help him get set up on his feet and able to make the most amazing next 50 years of his life, I think we should do so. Yeah. Before we sign off, I want to address, um, I've, I've touched on it in previous episodes. Um, but this particular case, um, spurred me, uh, to do some further thinking and some further research and, um, I'll start with uh, uh, a quote that we've used before on this podcast from John Gresham, the award-winning author. Um, And he states, quote, it is easy to convict an innocent person. It is virtually impossible to exonerate one, end quote. And that is, I think that applies so much to Lamar Johnson's case. Um, 28 years it takes um, to get this done, to get this, to accomplish an exoneration. And I'm going to draw a comparison or an analogy that I've used before um, and, and use it in this case. Again, I want to mention. I want to mention a a book uh, written by Stephen King. Uh, the title is Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, and King's principal character 
um, discovers a portal to the past. And he enters that portal with the motive that he is going to alter an event that has occurred and have a different outcome. The event will occur, but it will have a different outcome for the betterment of mankind. So he finds that as he gets closer and closer to the event in time and place, that there are bigger and stronger obstacles in his path. It's as though there is a force um, pushing back at him to keep him from changing the past. The past does not want to be changed. Now, let's look at Lamar Johnson's case. In, in the American criminal justice system, that force, that King's character experienced in the American criminal justice system, it's called the law. We must respect the process. We must protect the verdict. Merits is irrelevant. And we hide these things in the procedure, uh, criminal law procedure, not in the substantive law of criminal law, so that it doesn't matter how strong the claim of innocence might be the time limits set by law have expired, and that's what we're going to base it on. Overwhelming evidence of innocence does not require a court to ignore the procedural rules of protecting new evidence. The law does not want that. When you file a motion for new trial, it's like going 28 years in the past to change the outcome of an event, just like Stephen King wrote about. But the law doesn't want you to do that. The Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, has said there is no constitutional right to demand judicial consideration of newly discovered evidence of innocence brought forward after conviction. That's what the United States Supreme Court says. You don't have a constitutional right to file your motion for a new trial. They don't want that to be changed. Trial courts can grant those motions. They have discretion. They grant them, and the state can't appeal that ruling. So if you can find a trial judge that says, yes, I'm going to grant your motion and we're going to grant this guy a new trial, the state can't appeal that decision. But the law doesn't support that. Efficiency and finality is more important than innocence. I mean, we have to... I mean, when you present a motion for a new trial to a judge... The judge is going to go, oh, God, we don't want to open that case up again. 
we got to have finality. How long are we going to keep doing this case? And I can see a scenario where the prosecutor offers, in this, in Lamar's case, the prosecutor offers a motion for new trial, and the judge just laughs, probably, and says, Counselor, maybe you ought to look at the statute in Missouri you have to file your motion for new trial within 15 days of the verdict. Not 28 years, now get out of my office. Um, the finality and efficiency of the court system is more important than innocence. It's more important than reality. It's more important than correcting a terrible mistake that has been made. And all of this is embedded in our law and has been for 30 years. There's a Supreme Court case of Herrera versus Collins that set this principle that finality and efficiency is more important than any other issue. They issued an opinion just recently, um, again, the United States Supreme Court, and reaffirmed the principles set forth in Herrera. That makes it, that's why I go back to this Grisham quote, because he says it's virtually impossible to get an exoneration. That's the, the law is set up that way. You can't file your motion for a new trial because you're out of time. So you appeal it, and the appellate court says, huh, you had 15 days to file it, and it took you 16 or 17 years. No, of course not. Denied, denied. But And the attorney will say, but look at the evidence that we have of innocence. And the court will say, we don't have to. You didn't file it in time. That's what gets my blood boiling, that the courts... And I was a member of the courts that the courts say finality and efficiency is more important than innocence. Oh, man, that sticks in my craw. Okay. Um. <laughs> oh, come on, let me no, preach a little I, bit. I'm with you, I'm with you. Uh, a lot of times on the podcast, everything is super heavy and sometimes honestly a little bit depressing, the things we talk about. But just to real quick wrap up, I want, um, there is good out there. Kimberly, Gar Kimberly Gardner is good. People like the Midwest Innocence Project. There are people out there actively doing things to make a difference. There is hope and this is something that we can overcome. So those are all very positive notes. I also want to say we had the opportunity to meet one of our friends, Kylie, who said that she has listened to every single episode. So hi, Kylie. I hope we hear from you. Um, if you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Cleared Pod on Instagram and Cleared Podcast on Facebook. And until next time, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Me too. This is fun. <laughs>